Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. If I haven't met you already, my name is Tyler. I am one of the pastors here. And I'm going to name just first the elephant, maybe in the room, maybe just in my heart, uh, that the fact that we are talking about marriage this morning, I've just got to say, one, I know I'm not married, and two... I uh, have spoken for a living for a while. We've opened this year already talking about money, which is what most people say is the most awkward thing to talk about in church. But I'm just going to say I'm more nervous today than I was when we did money or time or any of the other things we've covered in church because I know that relationships like marriage, um, we each bring in our own story, our own experience, our own history, and that it makes things a little muddy and complex when we dive into things. So I want you to know as we've been preparing, as I've been preparing, as we've talked, I know Matt and Elise did such a great job as this too. I've had the gloves on, I've tried to handle with care. I've been praying. I hope this all comes across as kind and gentle and this remains a kind and gentle space where whatever that history is that we're bringing in, it's okay here. We're just gonna dive in a little bit, learn together, but there's no shame, there's no condemnation. We say that every week and we mean it, but it's especially true today and just knowing, again, the history that people can bring in when we talk about a topic like this, I want you to know that we are aware of it. And even with all that said, I am excited to be diving into this new series today. Chris already told you the title, Asking for a Friend, Asking for a Friend, a series focused on all the different types of human relationships that we can encounter and experience. So over the next several weeks, we'll be asking, hey, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? Uh, What does it mean to be a good coworker? What does it mean to be a good friend? What does it mean to be a good spouse? And we'll be diving into all those questions together. And I'm looking forward to the conversation that we'll have because this series intersects with many of my deepest convictions. And it resonates with many of the core beliefs that have shaped this church community as it's been growing. Um, You see, City Church OTR has always recognized that we need each other. Uh, that humans are made for relationships. We've said time and time again, maybe you've heard it, that we want this church to be a, a family because we know that life is better together. And this conviction that we need each other, that life's better together, that we're not meant to be alone, um, this idea isn't just something that we've dreamed up. It's not just some idea that we had on our own and thought, oh, this would be really nice. More and more, with increasing evidence, leading experts in mental and physical health are saying that healthy relational connections have a profound impact on human flourishing. Um, Indeed, and this is a book that actually Matt recommended to me, Dr. Vivek Murthys in this book called Together, so he's a former Surgeon General of the United States, he speaks about the healing power of human connection in this book. And he opens the book by speaking about his deep desire to understand the gravest health crises facing our nation. And so in his role of Surgeon General in 2015, he traveled the country and he went on what he called a listening tour. He wanted to hear firsthand what is bothering people, what's contributing to all the different health problems that we see in our society. And so he asked questions and he heard reports and he consulted with leading researchers. And do you wanna know what he discovered? You're going to hear it whether you want to or not. No, thanks. Uh, Dr. Murthy reports that relational disconnection or the absence 
of significant and meaningful relationships is more dangerous than smoking or obesity. Relational disconnection, more dangerous for health than smoking or obesity. It has more lasting consequences on human health. And he paints this picture in his book of a loneliness epidemic in this country. He says people heal on a slower pace of scale. People's like diseases are deeper if they are lonelier or disconnected. It is an absolutely fascinating book. And so Dr. Murthy cultivate, or he advocates for the cultivation of deeper relationships. And as he's reflecting on his cross-country tour, he writes in this book, to be at home is to be known. It's to be loved for who you are. And he says again and again, and community after community across this country, I met lonely people who felt homeless even though they had a roof over their heads. In other words, they had no place to belong and they didn't know how to get started. And if you don't know where or how to get started when it comes to deep relationships, I want to say you are in the right place. Because we want this to be a church where people can belong. We want this to be a home where people can be known. And so that's why we're asking the hard questions about all kinds of relationships. That's why we're launching this series. It's because being known matters. And because some of these questions that we have about relationships are uncomfortable, uh, that's why we've called it asking for a friend, right? You've used that phrase. It's like, I don't need to know. This happens to me all the time in sports. You know, it's like, Josh, I really don't need to know what just happened on the field. That's called a field, right? I don't need to know what just happened on the field. But like, I'm asking for a friend. What's, what's happening in this sports game that we're seeing? So the series title, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, uh, but we also know that quite literally some of us are asking for a friend. Uh, we are waiting to be seen and waiting to be known, and it's our prayer that this series will be one that God uses to help bring deeper and deeper relationships to this church. So speaking of being known, uh, this past week, one of my best friends, Kate, she turned 30, and Kate and I, we've been friends for a long time. Uh, it's been more than a decade, and she's what I call a lifer. I don't know if any of you have lifers, but these are the people that you just kind of already know will be in your life for the rest of your life. You know, so Kate is a lifer, which means she's seen me at my best and at my worst. Uh, she's witnessed my highs and my lows. She knows all my best stories and also has all the blackmail. Uh, she's been there for both and she's complicit in most, so I trust she's not gonna share. Uh, but I don't always look this good. I don't always sound this put together. She knows how polished I can be sure and also how raw I can be. And in a similar way, the human relationship we're exploring today as we begin this series, this marriage relationship, I think it's one we've all experienced or seen at its best and probably at its worst. Uh, we can be honest, it's, we've seen good moments in marriage and we've seen tough moments in marriage. Uh, we've seen the easy, fun side and we've seen the hard, difficult side. We've seen things work out and we've seen things not work out. We've either lived it or we've lived with it. Uh, we've experienced the challenges in ourselves or in our own lives or we've seen it in the lives of people we care about. Maybe we've seen it in the lives of our parents or in our dear friends. We could all, if we go around the room, we could all tell stories of marriage gone really well and of marriage gone terribly wrong. And I know that. Again, this is a safe space. So as we dive into our topic today, we can take a deep breath. We can know that we're aware of the complexity, and you can know that this conversation about marriage, I trust, 
is gonna be different than any other you've experienced in any other church because I would say that marriage is something that's frequently discussed in the North American church, but also something that's frequently misunderstood. So frequently discussed, uh, there's not always an absence of conversation around marriage, but frequently misunderstood. Um, in some faith communities, marriage can seem like an obsession. It's the primary topic of conversation and attention. Um, it's frequently discussed, but it can also be frequently misunderstood. So this morning, our objective is simple. I want us to understand a little bit better how Jesus, this is my argument, how Jesus radically redefined marriage in the first century. Because marriage existed before Jesus came to earth. But he, whether you know it or not, Jesus has probably already shaped the way that you think about marriage. He shaped the way we all think about marriage. And so I want to understand a bit better how he has defined it. Um, and I want us to learn what marriage is to mean for those who follow him today. So uh, this is a big task. It's coming in three parts. There's going to be a little bit of a history lesson. There's going to be a little bit of Bible time. And then we'll talk about what it means to us. And I apologize in advance. I know when I get up here, most of you just expect hilarity and personal stories. And I think there will still be moments of levity. But this one will have less personal stories today. And the first part will be a little more like a TED Talk with some history. Is that all right? Okay, so we're getting TED Talk, Tyler. The history lesson begins now. I want you to join me in journeying back to the first century world. We're going past Bethlehem. We're going past Calvary. We're going past first century Jerusalem. We're going all the way back to the ancient world of the Greeks and the Romans, okay? Are you there? We're in the Mediterranean. It's the Greeks and the Romans. And we need to understand that if we want to understand properly Jesus' teaching on marriage, if we want to understand how he changed the way that we all think and view marriage, we have to understand the ancient world. And if you want to understand the ancient world in a sentence, here it is. The ancient world was not a friendly place. I'm sorry, it just wasn't. The ancient world was not a friendly place. The powerful dominated the weak. Uh, the rich ruled over the poor. Men reigned over women. I mean, in Rome, husbands and only husbands enjoyed the legal right to divorce their wives. And men had the legal right to force themselves on their inferiors. So this included their wives. Of course, in Roman culture, your wife is your inferior, but it also meant their slaves. So in the Roman world, uh, having relationships with a prostitute or young boys at a temple court or other courtesans, this was something that wasn't only tolerated, but affirmed for men because it was seen as a defense against adultery. So as long as I, as a male, am like hooking up with this prostitute, I'm not gonna damage some other man's property, by which I mean his wife. This is just the ancient world, okay? Don't shoot the messenger, I see your eyes. So you can, right? So as long as you were cheating with someone who was less than human, AKA, again, a, a prostitute, a young boy, anything like this, you wouldn't be tempted to devalue another man's wife. It was not a friendly place. The ancient world was an exploitative place, okay? So it's not just Tinder in the 1960s that are to blame for all the problems we see in our world with relationships today. The world's been a cruel place for a long time, and in the ancient world, there were few protections for women or children or slaves. I mean, to make it even clearer, marriage placed no limits on the sexual appetites or practices of men, which shouldn't be too surprising in the ancient world because marriage in that setting was primarily an economic tool. It was primary an economic arrangement, a way to cement business partnerships. 
Uh, it wasn't freely chosen by most who entered marriage. It was not the culmination of some grand love story. In fact, uh, ancient princesses, they would not recognize our Disney movies if they came back to life today. They'd be like, what is that, you know? Uh, all this thing, they wouldn't know it because arranged marriages were the norm. Oftentimes couples never met before they were meeting each other and being introduced as betrothed or engaged. I mean, in fact, the historian Herodotus, so an ancient historian, talks about bridal auctions, said these were real common, where women were sold to the highest bidder. He writes in his history, once a year, in each village, the young women eligible to marry were collected all together in one place while the men stood around them in a circle. I mean, just imagine this. How terrifying for those in the middle of the circle. How awful for those in the outside. And then a herald called up to the young woman one by one and offered them for sale. He began with the most beautiful. And when she was sold for a high price, he offered for sale the one who ranked next in beauty. And then all of them were sold to be wives. The richest of the Babylonians who wished to wed bid against each other for the loveliest young women, while the commoners who were not concerned about beauty received the uglier women along with monetary compensation. So they were paid for taking the uggos. I don't mean that as a sign of value. I'm just saying like this was a terrible culture. And all who liked might come, even from distant villages, and they all bid for the women. Get this. This is what marriage looked like in the ancient world. This was how people had understood marriage for centuries. This was how first century people in Judea, where Jesus would have ministered, would have thought of marriage. Now their parents would have thought of marriage and how their parents would have thought of marriage. Okay, this is the, the cultural sea in which all the fish were swimming in. But then a Galilean came along and he started traveling the Judean countryside and he changed things. I mean, what did he change? Well, first he said, hey, both spouses are expected to be faithful. Not just women while their husbands do as they please. He said, fidelity is mutual. And he taught, his and his followers taught by extension, that marriage wasn't primarily an advantageous economic move. This isn't just something you do to like secure your finances. He said it's actually a visible symbol of God's grace and commitment to all people. He said marriage should be honored and respected, not devalued. And over time, the people that followed this leader, they called themselves the church, they said actually people shouldn't be forced into marriage. It's something they should enter willingly. Did you know that was a Christian development in the grand history of the world? It was a Catholic church, honestly, in like the early thousands that said, hey, we're actually not going to do arranged marriages anymore. Fascinating stuff. This was a radical, radical development in human history. Jesus and his followers cultivated a conception of marriage founded on mutuality, love, and sacrifice. They required of men the same sort of behavior that had always been expected of honorable women. That's how the Romans wrote about it. So women had these standards. Men could do what they want. Christians said, no, no, no. We're requiring the same of both. They said that men will care about their families and not cheat on their spouses. They said that self-sacrifice was the key attribute of a thriving marriage. And they said so because of what Jesus had taught them while he was on earth. As Jesus' first followers were building their faith communities in the first century, they remembered what Jesus had taught them. You know, I wonder if sometimes they sat around and they remembered, hey, remember that time that Jesus was like 
teaching on that side of the hill, and he said, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I think they thought about that, and they said, hey, uh, faithfulness to wedding vows, this is actually a costly thing. This is something that matters. We're not going to follow the cultural norms that say, hey, it's no big deal as long as they're less than you in culture. We're going to honor those commitments. This means there's no free passes for even flirting with the idea of being with someone else, right? I think they remembered that from Jesus' teaching. I think they thought back too, and they said, hey, Jesus said, it's been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, right? This is Jesus' way of saying, hey, I know in Rome that like, there's this thing that men can just get rid of folks, but if you're going to have a divorce from your wife, men, like, you need to actually not leave her high and dry, but you need to offer a certificate so that there's a future for her. Um, they, they thought more about it. They said, yes, this means that Jesus knows that divorce isn't something people should do casually, and it's not something folks should do on a whim. They learned from him that marriage was designed to be enduring and lifelong. I mean, these early Jesus followers, I think they began to think of marriage in a radically countercultural way, and so they were able to write things like, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives to submit in everything to their husbands. And we'll explain this in a bit. But, but they added, they added, they kept writing. They said, and husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. See, I think these are words that have been so misunderstood because people don't know the context into which Jesus was teaching and that Paul, who wrote these words, was writing. I mean, far from being oppressive instruction, these teachings to folks that would have heard it in the first century would have been radical words of life. I mean, every wife in the first century knew that she was supposed to submit to her husband because he was her superior. And Paul comes along and says, that's not at all your motivation. Your husband isn't any better than you. You're supposed to submit to your husband, which he means honor, respect, listen to you first, honey. We'll get to that later. But Paul says, submit to your husband. Why? Well, it's in the same way that the church submits to Christ. You now have a broader reason to doing it. It's not because you're any less than. It's because this is something that's freely given and just offered among yourselves. And then Paul added this thing that would have been radical in the first century world. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, which means to die for your spouse, right? This isn't something first century men wouldn't do or would have done. This isn't something that you had to do by law at all. These words that have felt so oppressive maybe to us, or we hear them with our cultural ears, these were radical words of life in the first century, saying that at the center of it all are two people of equal value before God that are choosing to honor one another by saying, you before me, no, you before me. This redefined the whole thing. I mean, Christian husbands were called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives were invited to love their husbands. Roman men knew their wives were expendable, and if you didn't like yours, you could pick up another at the auction. But Christian men were called to be committed and to lay down their own desires and their own rights and to instead honor and respect their spouses. Jesus' followers taught mutuality. They said that wives love husbands and husbands love wives. And they said this, this whole arrangement, it isn't about economics, it's about a covenant. It's about a promise. It's about visibly demonstrating that God promised his love for us 
and we can trust it. And so when we see this promise carried out between two people, we can trust that God's faithful love is in the same thing that we can see right in front of our eyes, a relationship that reflected the way that God was committed to his people. Marriage, Christian said, was intended to help those who would witness it think about God in heaven who is constantly faithful to them. So even as their Roman neighbors said that love and marriage had nothing to do with one another, Christians claim that couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, rather they said, and Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, that love is patient and kind, that love does not envy or boast, that it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In contrast with everyone around them, Christians said, hey, what's required to make a marriage work is love. And love shouldn't be left out of marriage. And what does love look like? Well, it looks like patience. And it looks like kindness. It looks like selflessness and support and hope and believing. And they said, these things together, this is the foundation of a thriving marriage. And so here's the point. Jesus changed the way we think about marriage. I'm very confident, just knowing kind of what norms exist in our world. Jesus changed the way you think about marriage, whether you believe in him or you don't, whether you follow him or not whether he's the center of your life or he isn't. If you view marriage as a relationship that's best when there's mutual love and support, and if you think marriage is something that should last, and if you think that marriage points us to deeper truths, then you have been impacted by the teaching of Jesus and by the teaching of his church. But the sad thing is, and you guys know this, Jesus' followers haven't always lived up to that teaching, right? I mean, the picture that's painted, and especially in contrast to what came before it, it is beautiful, but you don't need me to tell you uh, that human reality seldom measures up. I mean, we've made marriage something casually entered and casually exited, and that way we've cheapened it. Uh, but we've also, in some circles, made marriage like the end-all and be-all of living, Right? It's the pinnacle, the a final arrival point. And that way we've, we've idolized marriage when we're single. And then when we've made like marriage all about our families when we're in it, we've idolized it when we're in marriage. I mean, it, we've exaggerated it. We've distorted this radical, beautiful vision of marriage that Jesus presented. And so if we want to live more in line with Jesus's teaching, uh, what do we need to do differently? Are there any things we need to adjust, any things we need to think about? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, I have just a few ideas. For those of us who are married, here's how I think Jesus' teaching should reshape our lives. Uh, first, I think it's very helpful to think of marriage as a submission competition. Uh, I stole this phrase from a guy I really love, a submission competition. Uh, in other ways, you could say that Jesus teaches that marriage is a constant opportunity to say, you first, right? You first. So the idea is simple. If both spouses are committed to that goal, things will flourish. If both spouses are saying, hey, it's not what I want, it's what you want. No, I know this will make things easier for you. No, I want this to make things easier for you. Like if, if each spouse approaches the other in that way, 
right? Which is what I think Paul's going after in Ephesians 5 that we read. If, if that's what happens, things will work well. And yet the reality is in so many of our marriages, we typically try to see how much we can get away with. We keep lists and we keep score. We hold every sacrifice that we make over our spouse. We grow bitter when we haven't got what we've wanted recently enough. We leverage our submission or our preference of the other person to get something later. A dear friend of mine put it this way. He said, in modern American marriages, there's so much sacrifice for kids and for career, but there's not much sacrifice for each other. And that shouldn't be the case. Jesus teaches that marriage is a constant opportunity to say, you first. A constant opportunity to die to selfishness and to value what's best for someone else. I mean, that's, that's one way we can live more in line with Jesus' teaching on marriage. The second is this. Um, in our marriages, we need to fight fair. We need to fight fair. Uh, this is an honest space, right? Still, that still counts? Okay, just checking, uh, because fighting is part of marriage, isn't it? Someone help me, fighting's part of marriage? So I've heard. Uh, it's part of marriage, which means conflict happens, right? Life ain't easy, and relationships aren't either. So a Christian marriage is not a marriage where fights never happen, okay? That's just dreaming. That's pie in the sky. Uh, but I think it should be a marriage where fights are fair. Now, what do I mean by fair? Uh, I mean that old wrongs aren't brought into current conflict. I mean that words are used wisely. I mean that like petty jabs, they aren't hurled needlessly. Uh, That fights take place around necessary topics where there is real difference or real frustration or real hurt that needs to be discussed. Uh, But that resolution is always the goal. That fights aren't about getting even or making them feel what I felt. You know, Uh, that's not fighting fair. That we don't get so turned up before an end or a fight that like we're coming into the 10 while someone else is just like a level three, you know, watching their show. And then here's this hurricane coming into the room, right, with something to share. Uh, we don't want to do that either. A dear friend of mine and a counselor in Kansas City, uh, I love her. Gosh, she's probably all of like four foot 11, but she like towers over you like a seven foot person in personality, right? You know, people like this. But she used to say, conflict is beautiful when it's resolved. And I think of that all the time. Fights happen, but conflict can be beautiful when it's resolved. And Jesus' followers fight fair. They say what needs to be said, but they're always working towards resolution. And because fights happen and because we want to fight fair, there's some Christian couples that I know and really respect. They're committed to what I call uh, preventative maintenance. It's actually something Chris calls preventative maintenance. We joke all the time that'll be the title of his first book because if anyone loves oil changes or preemptive action, uh, it is Christopher Marlin. But one of the things that I know you and Kat practice, but then even many other couples that I respect do is kind of a regular basis thing is having like regular times of scheduled check-ins that aren't like, oh my gosh, we're in crisis and we need to do something now. It's more like, hey, it's on the calendar that we're either gonna get away together or we're gonna see a counselor before things go south or we're gonna just have this check-in with a trusted friend or a pastor or something like this. We're gonna do this on a regular basis so that before the wheels fall off the bus, before we're spiraling out of control, before it's like mission critical go time, uh, we've done some preventative maintenance. And I think it's a great idea, great idea. So what are some things we need to remember uh, if we're trying to follow Jesus into marriage? Well, first and foremost, we wanna know that we need to say, okay, you first, you first, you first. 
This is the posture of our hearts. We need to fight fair. We need to do preventative maintenance. But finally, and this is for all of us, married or unmarried, married or single, we need to remember that married people belong to a broader family. How to put it another way, this church is made up of both married people and single people. All the single people? No, uh, just kidding. It's made up of married people and single people who God has brought together to support and encourage one another. So single folks, we need to do our part to help the married folks in our church feel seen and known and supported and encouraged. Uh, Single people, let's remember that marriage can be lonely too. Uh, That married men and married women need friends so we can give the gift of friendship and support. We can help out in any way that we can, right? We're, We're in this together and married people, we can remember the single folks in our midst. We can remember to invite them in dinner or to include them in family life or you know those kinds of things. Like we're part of a broader family. We are in this together, right? We have to remember this. This is the picture that Paul paints of the early church. It wasn't marital status that had any kind of hierarchy in the thing. Instead, he said, no, no, all these differences are things that might divide us where you might have more honor as a Roman man as a married man, but less as a single man. Paul says, these distinctions don't count here. But instead, there's neither male or female, slave or free. I mean, this big declaration in Galatians that all have come together in the family of Christ, that's what's at the center of all this, that like we're in this together as a church. These distinctions that would have created hierarchy don't exist, and now we have the responsibility and the opportunity and the joy of caring for one another. And friends, I'm going to be the the first to acknowledge, I know we have only scratched the surface this morning when it comes to talking about marriage, right? And I hope... I I mean, first, I hope this isn't a gross metaphor, but I hope in scratching the surface, we haven't picked too many scabs, okay? Uh, And it sounds a little weird, but again, it's what I said. I know there are rough spots and there are tender places all around this conversation. And I pray that any joke that I've made out of my nervousness, any little thing I might have said just to help even myself get through it, wouldn't be offensive that God will like erase that from your memory and instead you'd hear the care And you'd hear the fact that no matter how you're coming into this space, you're in a safe space. I mean, married couples, as I'm thinking of final words to y'all, we as your church, we want to help you flourish. I mean, we are for you. We're cheering you on. We are here to help however we can. If you've got questions, uh, we'll connect you with good people and good conversation partners. If you need counselors, uh, we know some. Some of you know this. Chris and I actually went to a marriage counselor who's phenomenal uh, to work on our co-pastoring, right? But it's like we highly recommend her, and we know others, right? We're here for you. We are rooting for you. And if you're a single, you know, a party of one, we want to help you flourish as well. I mean, if you're single and you hope to be married, uh, you are safe here. And if you're single and you never want to be married, you are also safe here. We love you. We'll do anything that we can for you. Because church, home is a place to be known, a place to belong, a place where people find healing and rest. And we want to be that kind of place. And I'd say, just from my perspective, by God's grace, we are becoming that kind of place. And church, help us to be more and more that kind of place. So now as we prepare to respond in worship, uh, my prayer is that all of us will will worship knowing that we are home, uh, knowing that we are seen, knowing that we 
belong here, no matter that what our experience or history of marriage is or isn't, um, that no matter what other things we might have brought into room this morning, that we can approach God with confidence because his house, the place where he is, is a safe space. So as you know, friends, the way we love to respond to messages here, if you need to sing in the next few minutes, uh, you can sing. Uh, if you need to pray, you can pray. There will be people to meet you back behind these two little walls that we have, uh, the pinstripe walls, whatever we call them, you can pray. Um, as always, the Lord's table is available to you, right? We love Jesus's words when he says, as often as you gather, come around this family meal to remind yourself of my sacrifice on your behalf, right? That's why it's available every week. You can go on your own or with maybe some people you came with and grab the Lord's table. Right? You've got options. But let's approach God together in worship and be reminded of his incredible love for us, of his faithful promise for us, of the fact that he's given us all a family where we can be known and belong and be safe.